Hello, today on the Loopcast, I have Joe Slovic, and we're discussing the InfoSec meme, uh, and it kind of goes like this. The offense has to be right once, and the defense has to be right every time. So for me, being in this industry for since help desk, and then as a malware analyst at AV company, and now as a threatened malware analyst, I've heard this thing constantly repeated to me. Offense has to be right once, defense has to be right every time. It's not until recently that I discovered the origins of this meme, which was in the back in the 70s and 80s, when England was engaging with the IRA, there was an English quote that literally said that, that the bomber only has to be right once, the, the police and the intelligence have to be right every time. And so kind of the purpose of today's show is to break that apart and sort of look at what are the actual sort of offense and defense dynamics, you know, is this meme useful? Is it not useful? And then kind of going through and, and sort of digging down on what are the actual dynamics between an offensive posture and a def- and the defense? If you are coming to this conversation, not from the infosec side, but from the political science side of our audience or the more humanities oriented side of our audience, there is one book I do recommend reading before listening to this conversation. And that's Network Attacks and Exploitation, a Framework by Matthew Monti. I think it's really useful. It's not technical at all. It's very much written from a tactician and a strategic standpoint. And it's a little dated, 2000, I think 12, 2013. But that's just the case studies. Everything else in the book, you know, it's basically keeps up to date and is really good. So I suggest go read that for everybody and then come to this conversation. With that being said, please welcome my guest, Joe Slovic. Hello, pleasure to be on. Hi. I want to I want to maybe start off with at the top of the show of breaking that meme apart. The offense has to be right once and the defense has to be right every time. What what about this makes it so alluring and truthy? Because it there's an essence that it kind of feels true, but then when you like kind of dig it dig at it, it it's truthy. You know, it feels true, but it's not necessarily true. So what makes it so alluring and so like, you know, conveys that feeling of truth? Well, what makes it alluring, I think, and you were right in, and I can't remember the gentleman's name right now to save my life. I should have looked it up in advance, but the IRA example from the, I think it was the early 80s, may have been the late 70s, that the bomber only needs to be right once, the intelligence services need to be right every time, that it presents a very powerful image of how offense and defense work where defense is maybe not overburdened but somehow disadvantaged while the attacker only needs to find some way in and they can be successful and i think to a certain extent and we can pull on this idea through the conversation the idea of a terrorist bombing is maybe one of the few examples where this statement seems to hold a bit of water. But if we start looking at it a little bit closer, it starts to suddenly become full of holes because what we start seeing is that we've actually applied a sort of mixed metaphor with different timescales applied to both entities. So if we look at this in a conception just of time and of operations over time, we're looking at a very discrete point in time from the adversary's perspective, that one instant where whatever it is they're trying to do is successful versus a defender timescale, which is more than just any discrete incident, but rather the sum total or the set of all possible incidents. And that's just not fair. And that's not how things actually work in practice. And by having that mismatch in time and scope, we can certainly construct a narrative where it seems like the adversary perpetually retains the advantage and the initiative in matters. But if we start stretching this out and put adversary operations on the same scale of time and totality of operations as what we're typically looking at with defenders, things get a little bit more interesting. So even looking at the IRA bomber situation that 
kicked off this saying or this aphorism, however you want to phrase it, to begin with, it obfuscates the planning, the logistics, the movement through physical space necessary to put a bomber in position with the right materials at a certain place in time in order to wreak some sort of havoc and kill people. Let's not get around the bush on that. And when we start expanding the attacker's timeline out to encompass not just that one moment in time where they need to be in a place and blow something up, but rather all of the items before and after that incident, then we start getting to a picture that begins to resemble more the defender's dilemma of not a question of, I need to be right just once, but rather my entire attack life cycle consists of a series of interdependent steps. And if any one of those are interrupted, interdicted, or somehow caught, my entire plan unravels, or at least becomes something that needs to go back to the drawing board and reset. So adopting that perspective now starts to put things in a significantly different light where we can start appreciating that the attacker's life isn't all that easy either but also starts letting us know that the defender might not be as disadvantaged as we think about through the general conception that's taken root in information security as well as other walks of life. So before we go to the next set of questions, I wonder, is there something worthwhile in, in sort of this description of the attacker has to be right once and the defender has to be right every time? Or is it really as a, a communicative tool, as a sort of narrative tool, we just have to find a better metaphor, so to speak. I think overall, we definitely need to find a better metaphor because this item on its own is very much a misconception of how operations actually work. Having said that though, there is some merit to it if we want to focus on very discrete phases of the attacker's life cycle and the corresponding defender life cycle responding to some adversary. So from that perspective, if we want to look at something like a sunburst, the solar winds supply chain intrusion, or a NAPETCHA example, the 2017 wiper malware incident linked to Sandworm or GRU operations, that at a specific point, an adversary does can maneuver into a position where they have a number of options, potential options for disadvantaging or defeating a defender, whereas a defender has to cover down, so to speak, on any number of possible vectors. So any number of vulnerabilities, any number of potential egress or ingress in this case, I'm sorry, methods. And that's hard, but that represents only one phase of that adversary's entire operation. So if we stick with the flavor of the month right now, although I guess the flavor right now is water treatment plants in Florida, because we're talking in mid-February of 2021 right now. But if we were having this conversation about a week ago, the current item of excitement would be the solar winds related hacking activity. And certainly many commentators and very intelligent individuals will chime in that, whoa, this represents this soft underbelly of information security and you know, the, the burden is simply so much greater on defenders than it is on attackers as exemplified in this case. And my response would be that you are, one, you probably have never actually done defense in your life. Uh, two, you probably haven't done offense either, really to think about this because looking at things from both perspectives on the offensive angle, yes, a deploying of a unique stealthy and very well hidden capability is a major success and major tradecraft coup. It certainly deserves all of the tradecraft respect that we can give it, but that's only step one because for that tradecraft, for that specific action to have any value, it has to have a follow-up of some sort, whether that's intelligence gathering, deploying some sort of disruptive capability, some other goal. The goal of the intruder in this case isn't to deploy a backdoor in network monitoring software, but to attain something else on the other side of that with the 
backdoor and the network monitoring software a means to that end. As a result, from a defender's perspective, yes, the attacker may have an easier time of getting closer to their goal, but they still aren't there yet. And so we still have various mechanisms that are required for adversary success. The need for the adversary to be able to communicate or to control whatever implant, whatever capability they've injected into an environment. The requirement for the adversary to maintain that access over a period of time until they're able to complete that objective all provide avenues or sort of defensive attack surface to turn some language around a little bit where defenders can respond to adversary activities and either detect them, identify and mitigate that activity, or implement ways to block further intrusion operations. That doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, none of this is, and that goes for both sides, offense and defense here. But certainly looking at any of these operations as being a single move, very immediate, very discrete sort of representation of operations does away with or misconstrues the nature of really just cyber operations is what we're talking about for the most part here. But you could also apply this just as equally to counterterrorism, to various types of other strategy, where we're talking about multiple move games with two adversaries that can react and respond to one another throughout the course of events. So I want to sort of maybe get at the heart of the issue and please correct me if I'm wrong. So here we're talking about exploitation and attack surface, the ability of an attacker or defender to exploit a weakness in the opposing side and, you know, evaluate the, the attack surface of the opposing side and sort of the relationship of those two concepts to operational success. So let's start with the sort of attacker. When, when an attacker, you know, whether it's, you know, something like North Korea or Russia or even a red team looks at a defender's attack surface, what is the evaluation that goes on there? What is the sort of thinking? You know, is it, you know, each stage has its own sort of evaluation or, you know, Walk us through that. Sure. And to start off with a very typical, very standard cyber threat intelligence answer, the short one is it depends. Um, and in this case, it depends on what's my goal? What is the adversary's motivating function? Because we can separate things on a fairly high level between disruptive operations and items that are more espionage focused in origin. And in the case of the former, certain degrees of stealthiness and being able to hide are not all that valuable because you're ultimately seeking a noticeable effect at the end of the attack sequence anyway. Whereas in the latter case, a desire for stealthiness and being hidden potentially as long as possible from defenders is much more advantageous and desirable. Setting aside that distinction, now that we can start thinking about what it is we're trying to achieve, now we can start thinking about what possibilities exist or what are, possibilities are exposed by the victim in question that we are trying to penetrate, trying to compromise, pick your verb, however you may like, and what options are ahead of me and the relative weight and value of those options based upon their ease of accessibility, their likelihood of being detected, and other criteria. So for example, to again get back into the sunburst activity, because it's fairly recent and I think most listeners will at least have a fairly high level uh, understanding of how that campaign has played out thus far. So we had a likely, I don't know for sure yet, you know, this is all not clear at this point, but a likely intelligence operator that seems to have identified a relative weakness in multiple adversary environments through certain network security monitoring software that by virtue of getting a foothold into this provider's technology, it would open up subsequent doors into other environments for further exploitation and prosecution. And as you start playing that out from an offense, 
up from a offensive viewpoint, it's like, okay, what do I need to do in order to gain access to this supplier? And then based upon the supplier's follow-on access to client environments, what do I need to do to one, ensure that I'm getting some degree of execution, some degree of control in the environments that I want, and also avoiding unwanted exposure in the environments that I don't want to be in. So I don't end up in a situation where I spread myself too far and get picked up by a security company. And then start playing through all of these dependencies, all of these interlocking steps from initial target identification through capability development, through capability deployment to actual target selection and target uh, triage even because we're talking about a situation where the adversary doesn't have complete control over where their code ends up. And then finally, when that app adversary or us, if we're planning this from ourselves, winds up in a place where they want to be, how do I then ensure positive control and persistent control over that capability so I could then proceed on to mission accomplishment for whatever it is that I'm trying to do? And throughout that process, that's not easy. From a offensive planner, a fires planner, however, whatever phrasing you'd like to use for this, that's a lot of work to do and a lot of places where things can go wrong, whether it's a case where we identify uh, software or capabilities not ending up where we wanted them to go because we didn't understand something fundamental about our victims and how they operate. Or on the opposite end, and kind of what we saw in the case of Napetia in 2017, we spread too far and end up getting way beyond or over our skis where we wanted to be and put ourselves in a position where not only are we detected, but also where we're starting to, you know, for lack of better language, piss off a lot more entities than we really wanted to in the first place. So there's all sorts of opportunities throughout this entire sequence of events where not only defenders can stop us, but where our operations can go sideways. So if we certainly wanted to take a very discrete single point in time snapshot of that sequence, then yes, it's true that we can be right at any given time, whereas the defender, by nature of the defender's position, has to monitor a number of possibilities at any stage of the attacker's life cycle. But because we're talking about a sequence of events and not just a one and done sort of instance, the attacker has to win a number of interdependent rounds or interdependent games in order to achieve their objective. And that allows the defender to start clawing back some of that advantage and some of that initiative. Is the defender's weakness here awareness? So for instance, I think like ransomware has made a, a loud enough splash that you know a sufficient amount of companies are very aware. They don't want to get hit, hit with ransomware and they don't want to get hit with the sort of infrastructure that leads to ransomware, Bazaloader, TrickBot, whatever. But in the Solar Winds case, it's how do you how does the defender conceptualize long-term espionage-oriented operations? Because, you know, from what I understand of so the the attack on Solar Winds, this was something that has been going on for more than six months or approximately six months until FireEye kind of caught it. So in that sense, to sort of distill it down, I mean, is awareness of their environment or of awareness of, you know, the defender being a target for specific operations, a weakness? I, I think if a defender focuses too much on specifics in terms of adversary intention, that that could lead toward certain blind alleys and overinvestment in perceived items of interest while leaving others of actual but unrecognized interest left alone. So to dive into that a little bit and to flesh that concept out. So in, in the case of state-sponsored espionage, you could take the argument that it's like, well, if country XYZ steals the secret sauce or the recipe for my secret sauce, what does that do to me in the near term? Maybe not that much. So should I care relative to a ransomware operation that is intending to lock up my organization and inhibit my ability to function in the near term? That we can have an entire other podcast on that topic now that I think about it. But 
you know, that's certainly one way of conceiving of things. But if we're really taking a values-based approach from a defender's perspective, we should be looking at things in terms of adapting defense to organization centers of value or centers of importance. So if I'm talking about an organization that manufactures widgets, my sources of value are the ability to produce those widgets to known specifications and to ensure that other organizations can't produce an identical widget and undercut me in the marketplace. And looking at those organizational values and orienting defense around them means that I'm not defending against espionage or ransomware. Rather, I'm defending against things that might hold those values at risk. And that allows me to conceive of a more generalized approach of how network intrusions might impact my environment such that I can start organizing defenses in a way that can conceive of or defend against categories of attack or entire classes of offensive operation irrespective of their specific goal because it's oriented not towards what the attacker wants to do but rather towards what's most important to me. There may be certain externalities that manifest in that environment between the values of the organization versus the values of that organization's customers and whatnot, which is where things like regulatory environments, protection of PII, for example, might come into play. But overall, if an organization starts adapting less to sort of reacting to what the attacker wants, but more trying to embrace and understand what it is they need to do in order to preserve vital centers of organization value and value production, then we can start getting into a position where defenders take back some of that initiative from attackers, because now we know the lay of the landscape. We know where the crown jewels and other items, so to speak, reside and can start orienting our defenses in such a way to focus specifically or at least overwhelmingly on those items and make life more difficult for those who would seek to hold those at risk, capture them, steal them, however you want to phrase it. So I want to maybe take what you laid out about the attacker's sort of complex operational cycle and, and sort of introduce this idea of, you know, where does the defender come in and exploiting that cycle? So, you know, and not only exploiting that cycle, but where do we sort of factor in when the attacker has to be concerned about their attack surface? So, for instance, when I was writing that question, the first thing that kind of came to my mind was how standard like using Cobalt Strike is in a lot of offensive, not often, but like a lot of like intrusion oriented crimeware. It's just Cobalt Strike everywhere, basically or the use of registering domains in a consistent fashion. But to, to get back to the question, how can we conceptualize an attacker's attack surface? Things that are specific to attackers that defenders can exploit. Right. And you know, this starts getting us more along the lines of behavior-based cyber threat intelligence, but we can start looking at adversaries as basically consisting of their tools, their tendencies, and the infrastructure through which they are able to deliver or communicate to these items. And all of those touch points provide opportunities for defenders to at minimum identify and at maximum disrupt adversary operations. So for example, if I'm an adversary and I am trying to identify initial points of ingress into a victim environment, say looking for open RDP listeners, I have to identify those somehow. Maybe I have a Shodan license or something similar and I can search for these things, but I still need to kind of verify them as well. So I need to touch the, vic the potential victim infrastructure from something that I have control over. And being able to identify what is that adversary infrastructure profile or what is this behavior of sort of knocking on the door to try to see what ports might be open and listening and how does that conceptualize? And that exposes something on the attacker's side where they can be identified and in the course of identification, blocked or filtered in one way or another, whether that be at a very atomic level by blocking an IP or a domain or at a more general level through adopting something like geographic IP fencing or some other more rigorous way of eliminating entire classes or entire possibilities for subsequent interaction. And it's looking for these opportunities that where defenders can 
again, start clawing back some of that initiative from attackers. So we just talked about an example from a network perspective on a host perspective. And I realize that these are probably security so-called 1% conceptions and are not immediately available to all organizations, although they really should be working towards this. But for example, identifying unknown unsigned binaries executing in untrusted user space like app data local temp. Very typical staging territory for all sorts of badness as well as for things that maybe shouldn't belong in the network in the first place. While we can rail against trying to detect or even prevent execution from such objects in such locations as being unrealistic, at the same time, from a very business-focused uh, way of conceiving things of what is minimally necessary for the organization to continue operation, well, we can start cutting an adversary off at the knees, so to speak, by identifying what are these shortcuts, what are these possible routes for initial code execution and initial interaction with my victim and start taking them away. And that starts adding costs to adversary operation, maybe at minimum inconveniencing, but at maximum truly making things very difficult as we start talking about items like application allow listing or doing very rigorous code signing certificate inspection for the deployment of adversary capabilities. So really it's up to the de defenders to decide in conjunction with the rest of their organization, certainly because very few organizations exist primarily to provide a secure network, rather they exist to provide some value of some sort, but in trying to identify what is the most rigorous approach that we can take to secure whatever it is our primary mission might be, and in so doing, really eliminate significant possibilities from attacker operations and impose significant costs and inconveniences for how they operate, such that it's not a question of them being right once, but rather being right multiple times through multiple sequences of events in order to get at what sort of end goal they have in mind. So going back to like raising the costs, I mean, how does the sort of standardization or making public of offensive tools. I mean, is that in your view, something that raises the cost? And so when I mean made public, I don't mean we're going to deal with that later in the show. I don't mean like burning an adversary's infrastructure, uploading everything to VT. What I mean, like in this case, what I mean is uh, Mimi Cats is accessible, Metasploit, Cobalt Strike. Those are all sort of, available enough to form, you know, a somewhat competent offensive stance. But in terms of raising the cost, does that standardization play in that? Or when we talk about raising the cost, we're talking about something that's very internal to a defender's network and very internal to their to a defender's posture? Well, I think both actually apply. It just depends on your perspective and what sort of organization you're, you are and what it is you're trying to achieve. So if we're talking about sort of more general community defense, outlining intrusion methodologies, intrusion pathways, such as initial code execution to Mimikatz to Cobalt Strike to Active Directory compromise to owning the whole network. Well, understanding how that plays out and how adversaries move from one stage to another and what are those interdependent steps. While it's, you know, there are certainly many other possibilities for achieving the same objective from an adversary perspective. At the same time, an adversary needs to learn or develop the tools in order to make those other possibilities realistic. And by disclosing tradecraft, not in the sense of like, here's a hash for a cobalt strike dropper, that's pretty damn meaningless actually, but rather how that effect is delivered, executed, and plays out in practice starts making adversary operations more difficult. Certainly adversaries will adapt because they still have their own missions and objectives in mind that they're trying to achieve, but we can keep them off balance, so to speak, by continuously identifying, disclosing, and describing how those operations look and how they can be defeated. From an internal network defender standpoint, where we're not talking about the totality of adversary tradecraft, but rather just what is necessary for my own network, we have significantly greater options in that not only do we 
you know, certainly it helps to be aware of and cognizant of the, what it is the adversary can do and how they operate, but we now control the territory on which the adversary is trying to operate. And that opens up a host of additional possibilities in terms of limiting or in, simply denying the adversary certain possibilities, whether that's the ability to execute code in certain types of way, to make use of certain types of communication, or identifying how those techniques would play out in practice. So from an own network standpoint, it's basically, if we're doing this correctly and doing this with the full support of a given organization at our disposal, we're allowed to cheat because we can change the rules as we go along and cut off entire avenues of possibility for that adversary and thus not just inconvenience them, but completely deny certain avenues to them outright. So in this sense, how useful or not useful is attribution? And what I mean by attribution, I mean, like being able to point your finger and say, that's North Korea, that's Russia, even on a crimeware level, you know, that's Wizard Spider, that's UNC 87 or 1873 or whatever. The naming conventions are crazy. But how useful is that sort of direct attribution if really what we're putting into play as defenders is, you know, technical, you know, TTPs, you know, how, you know, somebody would approach, you know, getting into a network and moving around the network. What is the value of attribution to that? Right. And that's always a very difficult and sometimes very heated question. And I would say in a very frank matter that the type of attribution that you're describing is interesting, but fundamentally useless from a operational defense standpoint. Yeah, it's kind of cool to have this background and understanding, but fundamentally, would it impact or influence how I respond to or how I could detect a given intrusion? And I would say, other than some very narrow exceptions, like for example, if you're able to positively identify during the intrusion that it's sandworm that's in your network, like, well, I might want to treat this a little more carefully or with a greater sense of urgency because of that entity's links to disruptive and destructive operations. But the likelihood that I'm going to be able to make that judgment at a time where it's going to matter for defensive decisions is slight, if non-existent. So the distinction that I like to make, and Josh Miller, who I believe is at Proofpoint now, made this point in a SANS CTI talk that he gave just a couple of weeks ago. But differentiating between types of intrusion, between a sort of big A attribution relating activity to a specific entity, or even at a more general level, a country for what that's worth, and small a attribution, where we're linking items not to an entity, so to speak, but rather to a collection of previously observed and linked behaviors. And that starts to become more valuable from a defender standpoint, because for one, the data required to make that assessment is actually available to us, whereas the data necessary to perform a entity link may not be available to us or might not be available to us until five years later when the Department of Justice releases or unseals and 120-page indictment of these actors names and shames them. But the other element of that is, from a defender standpoint, what I want to know is, what is this adversary doing? Where have they come from? Or how did they get to the point where they've gotten in my network where I identified them? And what might I anticipate to come next? And that all ties to behavior-centric ways of looking at items such that the ability to cluster common behaviors and sequences of events together becomes very useful for defender response and mitigation efforts. And that sort of attribution, small a attribution, is eminently possible for the commercial cyber threat intelligence industry, for large organizations, as well as for small organizations excuse me, that are ingesting this data from external sources of trying to perform that link that when I see the phishing email that's using this specific third-party service for communicating or emailing links to executable files hosted on Google Drive is then followed up by 
a initial deployment of TrickBot and then Ryu grant ransomware or something along those lines. It doesn't matter what criminal entity is behind that activity. All that matters is understanding how those activities are linked and being able to make those analytical judgments and assessments of where that activity is going in order to orient defense to meet and respond to that operation. So I want to switch footing to, we've talked about sort of how defenders can be successful, how offense can be successful. I want to talk about failure. And most notably, in a lot of the, the offensive operations that are brought to public, Solar Winds, Netia, Stuxnet even, but that's drink. When we talk about failure, how do we conceptualize that for the offense? Because it seems like even with Solar Winds, that it really seems like they were successful. They were, you know, they were able to be persistent for at least six months, access, you know, you know, if we're assuming that it's espionage, access a lot of data and yet, you know, they get burnt, but they still have that data. So it's a success, I guess. But in your view, how do we begin to evaluate failure and sort of the outcomes when it comes to the offensive side of things? Right. And that's a really great question and a really fun thing to explore because so often in Western media, we have this perception that, oh my goodness, we're just getting destroyed by the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, maybe even the Iranians um, and, and other entities, because we read about these attacks and hear about how these intrusions have played out. But I would say, well, flip that on its head a little bit. We know about these intrusions. We've identified in a way that not only is this information communicated in SCIF environments in the greater DC, Southern Maryland area, but making the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. So to a certain extent, adversaries have failed at least in the element of not getting caught. Now it is certainly like you said before, like yes, solar, the solar winds intruders were caught, but they still had the data. Well, we don't know that necessarily. We know that they were active for a while. We know that they were very stealthy and they were able to get code execution in a number of environments, but we don't know what their objective was. We don't know if they were able to actually meet that objective or not, or just were able to get to a 80% or even 90% solution, but not able to actually complete what their tasking might be. And so from an adversary's perspective, it's kind of hard for us to judge failure, but similarly, it's also kind of hard to judge success. And the way that I would phrase this is that the first sort of barrier, unless you absolutely just do not care one way or the other, what people think or are able to identify about you is, okay, not getting caught is desirable. May not be the primary sort of motivation, but all things being equal, not being caught versus being caught is probably where we would want to be. And while there are probably a number of intrusions that are ongoing right now that we are unaware of and might not be ever for that matter. And at the same time, there have been a number that have been identified through either government or private sector sources and leading to mitigation and recovery. That's why it's always funny where, you know, not to sort of cast dispersions on different national intelligence services and whatnot. But when we start talking about like, oh, it seems like just the Russians or the Chinese or whomever, you know, they just seem to be destroying the Americans left and right. You know, like, is there any symmetry here? It's like, well, when's the last time you heard about any US-based capability getting caught in the wild? I can think I can't remember the name of the malware family now, but the Kaspersky report on counterterrorism targeting capabilities that was a little bit controversial, but otherwise, you know, are we talking Project Sauron? Are we talking Stuxnet? I'm, you know, if, if that's the last time, like that's pretty damn good because I doubt that the US or Israel or the UK or other entities have been quiet and sitting on their hands this entire time, but rather they just haven't been caught by either the third party cyber threat intelligence industry or by other entities, or at least those other entities don't want to make such things public. Whereas from an offender standpoint and looking at some of the other actors that we, from a Western perspective, perceive as being the greatest threats, 
But yeah, it kind of stinks that we see evidence of all of these intrusions and other activity, but at the same time, they are getting identified, at least eventually. And depending upon what their goals may have been and what their metrics would be for success, they may have met some of them and they may not have been. And potentially the embarrassment of identification really does matter. And ultimately, I mean, kind of turn in on my own argument here, we just don't know for the most part because a true adjudication of understanding adversary failure comes back to understanding what that adversary's mission might be. And we can look at certain events either because they just technically failed, like looking at some of the elements of the 2016 Ukraine power event or the 2017 Saudi oil and gas event that the attackers kind of screwed some things up and so we can judge those as not being successes. In other cases, like NotPetya, was the exit the intent there to just cause chaos wherever, or was the intention there to cause chaos very specifically in a given geographic region and then it overspread? Without knowing that, we really can't adjudicate precisely what the measures of success would be and how we would judge failure in that sense. But I'd certainly say that at least identification gets us somewhat towards the realm of at least disadvantaging or annoying adversaries where capabilities get disclosed. Something I, I kind of always wondered is when either AV companies, security companies, or even the, the government sort of writes these long sort of papers on dissecting, you know, what happened. So like solar winds or Stuxnet or even Net, um, not pet yet. What I find kind of interesting, I always wonder like, do adversaries read this and kind of adapt? Like, oh, like they kind of just shrug their shoulders and say like, oh, our infrastructure and all our implants have been burnt. They're all on VT. They all have been identified. Oh, back to the drawing board. So I wonder if like, if, you know, literally burning down infrastructure and doxing, even going as far as doxing operators, is, is that a useful part of the toolbox or is it just like, it's kind of interesting, but we really have to focus on sort of these broader technical issues. So I think, again, it depends, but uh, to, to, to use an example to highlight the concept here, for a rather long period of time in the mid 2010s, APT28, Strontium, Fancy Bear, however the hell you want to refer to them, was incredibly consistent in how they created network infrastructure and generated SSL certificates associated with that infrastructure, such that pretty much any entity that had resources and could look could identify new infrastructure as it was stood up. And that was kind of a not really close hold, but certainly not public sort of observation for years because it was useful not to disclose that to the adversary because we don't want them to know that we can identify this immediately. Rather, it's very helpful to identify this and the adversary doesn't know that we've identified it and then take actions accordingly. Well then, and this is not to cast aspersions on any security company, but a security vendor published a blog in... I think it was 2017. I might be off on the year there, but that publicly documented the, the behaviors in question, the specifics in terms of registrars, name servers, SSL TLS certificate parameters that were being used by this adversary. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as that went public, that behavior all changed. And what that shows is that, well, maybe adversaries don't read every single tweet that goes out there on given activity or any and every piece of information that crosses the, the wire, but they are paying attention. And that particular case showed that something that had been very reliable for several years disappeared almost overnight following public disclosure. Now, there are a couple of ways to take this. One is that from a intelligence analyst perspective, like, oh, this sucks. Like we, we, had, we had them, we understood how they operated and then someone opened their mouth and they went away. That's one perspective and it's a, not a 
wrong perspective, but it's a very skewed one towards a certain industry. Because the other way of looking at this is that now from an adversary's perspective, they have the doubt or the concern of, oh, crap, we were doing this for years. How many of our ops have been penetrated, identified, or otherwise mitigated or traced back that we don't even know about necessarily based on this information? And oh my goodness, we need to revise what we're doing as soon as possible and start building things back from the ground up. Now, from an immediate defensive standpoint, that is inconvenient because we had a way of tracking something and then we lost it. But that we also need to take into consideration the adversary cost of you know, this entity has had to retool or otherwise redesign operations following that public disclosure. In this case, we're probably not talking about things that are too costly, changing some characteristics in infrastructure creation and registration. That's annoying, but it's not a game changer. But if we start getting into things like the fundamentals for how certain tools are developed and deployed. I could think about an example, Micah Yates, who's over, I believe he's still at Palo Alto Networks, gave a presentation at the Recon Conference a few years ago about APT3 code reuse that lasted for about a decade and for simple functionality, like daytime functionality and time stopping. And in those cases, you have an adversary that now has to question like, oh, goodness, like we were doing this this entire time, what else were we exposing? And inducing some degree of second guessing and introspection on the adversary's perspective can be, I mean, we don't know exactly what it's doing, but at least I like to think in my very defensively minded, but still malicious heart of hearts, that we're enforcing some degree of heartburn, these actors, as they try to understand where they went wrong and how they could avoid doing so in the future, which is a cost on its own, as well as providing a certain degree of personal satisfaction. So to maybe take it to a dramatic level, what about failed takedowns? Because I think with, <clears throat> we've, we had the TrickBot takedown in October or the attempt, and then we had the takedown of Emotet recently, and they were kind of very different. In, the, in that sense, and building on the themes of a sort of resilience and adaptation, what do we, when, we, when you see these takedowns, how do we evaluate them? Because it seems like Emotet has completely disappeared, and, and sort of the, the news is, I think by March 25th, it's going to be totally gone or sinkhole completely, whereas with TrickBot, within 30 days, it was back up not as not as large as it was before but it's back up even after an attack by microsoft and cybercom allegedly or whatever but back to the question how do we evaluate takedowns and sort of takedowns within a defensive context right and i think a Fundamentally, cyber is just a means to an end for an adversary, and that short of either denying completely whatever that adversary's objective is or eliminating the adversary through arrest or other means, that adversary is going to find another way of trying to achieve their goal, whether that's through trick pot spinning back up or the MOTED operator's developing something new or moving on to a different tool set. Now, certainly there are costs imposed. And the case of TrickBot, I think, is very interesting because we could look at that example and say, oh, this was only a temporary inconvenience. What does that matter? Well, it was a temporary inconvenience that was timed fairly deliberately around the United States election cycle with a mindset of trying to avoid potential ransomware incidents at local and municipal levels that might either perceive or actually impact the availability or the integrity of election operations. And so even though it was temporary, you could count that as a win because it did what it needed to do for the critical time period that was in mind for those behind the decision-making. When we start talking about something like Emotet or TrickBot longer term, you know, takedowns are nice because they give us a sense of like, haha, we took it to the adversary for once instead of constantly getting beaten ourselves or whatever day in and day out. But ultimately, 
unless that adversary has either already achieved a measure of success that they have cashed out and they're riding around in their Lamborghini in the Maldives or something like that, or that adversary has been not just inconvenienced, but actually taken off the streets and arrested in some fashion, they're going to come back somehow in some way. And short of, again, fairly extreme measures, which I'm not even going to entertain in this conversation, we as defenders need to look at takedown operations as being temporary inconveniences that can either be designed to buy time around very specific incidents, elections, the Olympics, et cetera, or as ways to just continuously keep adversaries sort of on their toes so that, yeah, they're going to come back, but they had to rebuild and they had to do something. And they also have to question and invest resources into their own self-defense and persistence mechanisms. And that's less resources or some attention that they weren't able to spend on being able to compromise or otherwise uh, victimize other entities. So it's not a battle that we could win necessarily, but at the same time, it's not one that the adversaries can win either because we can continually evolve with them. It's really just a question of imposing costs over time and who's willing to bear them and how we respond to them as things play out over the course of months, years, decades, et cetera. So I know we kind of avoid politics in InfoSec, but it almost seems like access to law enforcement and politics and and the ability to sort of design a narrative is very much a advantage for the defense, right? So like in in the Emotet takedown, it was the FBI, the Dutch, I, I forget the name of their service, the EU, Interpol, and they all came together with the Ukrainian police. And when I think about the equivalent on the offense, I really can't. Right. So other than like bribing or uh, maybe in the Russian context of having somebody protect you, but it it seems like the ultimate sort of leverage that the defense can bring to bear is its ability to interface with politics and law enforcement. I wouldn't even say the ability to interface with politics. Law enforcement certainly comes up, but I would almost, you know, to use a Max Weberian concept here. It's having the lever of the monopoly on legitimate violence to uh, lean on becomes quite powerful, where even in the case of Ukraine, that through sufficient cooperation, you can make contact with authorities and start kicking doors down. That's maybe less so in the case of, say, Russia or Belarus or some other entities where there seem to be greater protections in place or greater possibilities for shielding individuals from international law. But yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, criminals and even APT entities to a certain extent have to live in the world with everyone else. And maybe they're fine staying in their home country and having fairly limited operations. But wouldn't you know it, if they ever want a holiday in Spain, that they can get picked up by Interpol and find themselves facing a judge and jury or some combination thereof somewhere else as a result of their actions. I'm going to switch footing now to evaluating failure when it comes to defense. So we've, we've outlined some sort of, you know, offensive failures. They're big and dramatic, but failures on the defensive side are just as sort of dramatic. Equifax, Equifax really does come to mind. It's, it's just kind of stunning to me still, but When we talk about failure and the defense, how do we evaluate failure when it comes to defense? What are are sort of the lessons learned or what is a framework or how is that sort of, how do we approach the concept of failure when it comes to defense? Yeah, and that's an excellent question. We could spend an hour on this too, but I, I think that we currently have a very strong misconception of what failure looks like in defense and that we have a very network security centric conception of failure. Oh, a user clicked on a fish or, oh, the adversary was able to install a web shell on a server. We failed. Well, the question is, did we? Because again, the goal of incident responders, security operations center, et cetera, it's like, yeah, they want to keep the network safe, but keeping the network safe is just a means to an end of ensuring that the protected organization can maintain, secure, or preserve whatever centers of value that organization centers on. So if 
Harry in accounting was successfully fished and maybe even his computer was locked up through a incidental ransomware infection, but it was contained to that workstation. We wipe and rebuild it and he loses six hours of productivity. Maybe I call that a win. Some would call that an incident and a defensive failure. I say, nope, that we did fine. That really, instead of judging, and I think this is where the core concept that we started this conversation with gets some of its strength it's misappropriated strength from that offense is only to be right only once defense every time is that we're misconceiving what it is defense should be caring about. It's not about blocking every fish, every scan, every web inject or whatever other attack vector. Rather, defense is about making sure that can we preserve and maintain centers of organizational value, whether that's we keep the secrets secret, we keep production running, we keep consumer or customer information private, if we can achieve those goals, we've won. And there are many steps necessary for attackers in order to reach those goals, such that even if they get halfway there, we as defenders have still won the engagement because we preserve those sources of value or those sources of sort of existential worth for the entity in question. And if we start viewing defense in that way, the possibilities for a adaptable, uh, flexible defense start opening up and becoming very interesting. That's why I hate things like you see in, whether it's payment card industry or in the US government where you know, any sort of incident is reportable and seems like it becomes a major de- big, big deal, uh, so to speak, when really, no, like these could be victories, actually, even if they were able to get into the network because other security controls were able to step in or were effective in preventing access to things of significant and true value. So what I find interesting about evaluating failure on the defensive side and is how do, how do defenders adapt and what I mean by that is, and, and sort of the example I want to work from isn't like, oh, we need to get a better sort of email, you know, scanning, you know, or a better sense of, you know, how people laterally move within the network, but rather like, in the, I keep thinking about the solar winds example, which is, you know, as a modern corporation, you do have to let third parties into or interface with your network. So either you know, solar winds, you know, fire eye, you know, even sort of backup carb like uh, carbonite sort of backup software. So when that third party is what leads to an intrusion, how should we expect the defense to adapt? Or, you know, what what is the tone of adapting post attack when you're working in an environment that isn't necessarily just under your control. You have to deal with the controls of third parties, fourth parties, and sort of that complex software operating environment. Yeah, and that's, it's tough. You know, there, there's no easy way to put that because you're right, it starts taking, well, responsibility is still there, but authority and ability is not there anymore, at least not there universally. Whereas instead, an organization has implicit or explicit trust relationships with third parties for parts of their network stack, for parts of their security posture, and what do you do about that? And the answer to that is there are no easy answers to it, unfortunately, because, and I think this is more of a question from a risk analysis perspective that many organizations have looked at managed service providers, cloud-based service providers, and other sorts of ways of offshoring or offloading certain responsibilities to third parties. And they've seen the business logic, which is very strong, but have not been able to adequately judge the risk inherent in such activities. And so decisions which make defense fundamentally, not impossible, but significantly more difficult, especially if you're talking about a third party that is very well enmeshed into operations and can't be isolated to a certain segment or to certain specific aspects of operations that really there's no good way of going after that other than just having complete trust that the third party will 
do its job and not get compromised itself. And as we saw with things like Cloud Hopper, that doesn't end up playing out well for any, everyone involved. So th this gets at a more fundamental business decision of really trying to understand that in the course of reaching for or gaining certain efficiencies and operations, what has been what risk has been implicitly accepted that could have dramatic impacts on how the organization is able to secure itself. And it may actually be the case, depending upon what sort of third party services we're talking about or external entities that have access to our environment, that you know what, that risk, I don't care. Like I run a manufacturing organization and I am outsourcing the management of my external web page to some third party. They control and host the content and are responsible for securing it, but it doesn't go any deeper than that, except for maybe pulling a couple of things from my internal environment. Yeah, it kind of stinks from a reputation perception perspective if that site gets defaced or compromised in some way, but it has no bearing on my operations in a fundamental way. So really, I could probably not care about that one. But if I'm talking about an MSP that has deep inroads into my production environment for that same manufacturer, then I need to be asking critical questions about, okay, it made sense from a revenue or cost savings perspective to bring this entity into my environment. But what have I now exposed as a result? And am I okay with that? And I don't think very many organizations have even addressed that question, uh, little and satisfactorily answered it. Does that equivalent exist on the offensive side? Like I just, like I keep thinking of like, what are the trust relationships on the offensive side? Like how many third-party tools are they using? You know, are they just developing tools all in-house? Like does, take what you just told me about the defense and sort of the difficulty of managing risk and managing trust relationships and work that with the offense. Does that, does that exist with sort of offensive adversaries? If it doesn't, it should. I wonder how many offensive adversaries have done a code review of Cobalt Strike to make sure that there's no backdoor or something else embedded in that code, code base. Probably not. Likewise, whether you're talking MSS, GRU, or NSA, they need some way, even if it's just the initial hop that then gets filtered through many other third-party compromised or other providers, they have to have a connection to the overall network the internet somewhere through some provider how trustworthy is that provider how do you know that that provider hasn't been compromised or that some network technician at that provider has been paid off to add something to that network or put in some sort of static route or gre tunnel to shunt traffic to some other entity often offensive operations need to keep these things into consideration too. Now, again, depending on the offensive operator, if I'm financially motivated, some of these concerns don't bother me because as long as I can keep doing my thing and I can put myself in a jurisdiction where I don't have to worry about arrest, yeah, you can pick this up all you want. It doesn't matter. I can still do my thing with relative impunity as long as I pay off the local authorities to make sure that they keep me safe. But if I am an intelligence agency and I'm trying to guard not just you know, maintaining the secrecy of my operations, but also the tools and the capabilities that I'm using, well, you know, that's a really interesting thing. And identifying cases where it's like, ooh, wait a minute, if I trace route this link from me to my target and all of a sudden this one hop seems like it's taking a little bit longer, what does that mean? You know, there, there's lots of things that mature offensive operators need to be or should be aware of and questioning themselves on, depending upon what it is they care about and their particular risk profile. So we often want to talk about how defenders need to be worried about all of these things and, you know, trust relationships and whatnot. It's like, well, you know, imagine that there's a backdoor in putty and all of a sudden you find yourself as some state-sponsored intelligence agency somewhere in the world and having used PuTTY extensively for remote management and administration of uh, midstream infrastructure. And it's like, holy crap, there was a backdoor in this. What does that mean for not just my infrastructure, but all the ops that have run through that infrastructure? And these questions are legitimate and I don't think they get thought about very often. So I think we've kind of come to the end of the show. We've covered a lot and per tradition, you know, 
at the end of the show, leave us with something to think about, something to chew on, something to, you know, have further research, you know, interests or whatever. <laughs> but leave us with something to to think about. I think it would greatly benefit entities in this space, the network security space, especially to start thinking through precisely what it means to be an offensive operator, what that entails in terms of tools, exposure, risks, and implicit trust relationships, and what sort of exposure they have. And then we can start from a defender's perspective then to understand that, wait a minute, we actually have quite a few levers or quite a few areas that are available to us to disrupt or at least disadvantage those operations if only we can either work out the proper coordination or understand precisely how that would play out. So having a understanding or putting oneself in the mindset of a offensive actor can really go a long way towards understanding how, you know what, on the defensive side, we don't think have things as bad as we think we do. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. That was my guest, Joe Slovic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Happy to be here. Awesome.